0: Welcome to Expanding Circles, Episode 3. Today's conversation somehow got around to a discarded moose head, Billy Bob Thornton's rockabilly band, and unexpected interviews. Please enjoy the conversation with Vanessa Armand. All right, so welcome back. Today, my guest is Vanessa. Say hi to the people. Hello. So how are you today?
1: I'm good. Okay. Doing well.
0: So let's start off. Um, So you are from Chicago, correct? That's right. So born, bred, and raised?
1: Actually, I was born in Minnesota.
0: Born in Minnesota. Born
1: (laughs) in St. Paul, Minnesota in the Twin Cities. And I lived there for two years. And then my parents moved to Chicago. But my mom is originally from... A Chicago suburb, so it's not surprising that we ended up back there.
0: Out of curiosity, where, where's your mother from? She's
1: from Blue Island, Illinois.
0: From Blue Island, okay. Mm-hmm. Not a part of the Chicago area, I've, I'm really just familiar barely. with. Just
1: barely, yeah. It's just, just outside. Yeah.
0: Because mm-hmm. I'm also, I mean you, you, of all of us Chicago-connected people, you probably have the, the strongest claim of being true Chicago.
1: Mm, well, yeah, because her house is in Chicago proper. Okay. Now, yeah.
0: Okay, oh, so become Chicago at this yeah. point. Okay. So I
1: was so starting at age two, I was in Chicago. Uh, have lived in Chicago most of my life.
0: What part of the city?
1: All over, actually. So my mom's from the South Side, called the Beverly area, and um, then in college, I moved to the area where DePaul is, which of course I can't remember the name of the neighborhood. Oh, Lakeview. Lakeview. And then um, I moved a little bit further out. It was Lincoln Park and then it was Lakeview. And then I moved to the Wicker Park neighborhood, kind of the hipster part of town. And then I moved to Humboldt Park and then I moved to Logan Square, which is where my condo is now.
0: And like all the neighborhoods, Wigger Park, all the, those are the places where all my friends now live. Mm-hmm, <laughs> Since mm-hmm. that kind of seems to be the place to be.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, so Chicago for almost all of your life.
1: Almost.
0: Okay. Yes. Um, and so you also did your undergrad?
1: I did, yeah. So uh, it's funny because mm, I always thought that I would leave and, and live far away. And I do now, I live in Japan and I did, I lived in France for a while. And so at those points in my life I lived far away, but it's funny that both of my degrees I got in Chicago. So my first degree I got in a costume technology from the theater school at DePaul. And uh, my second degree, I got in applied linguistics and, and TESOL, teaching English to speakers of other languages from University of Illinois at Chicago, also in Chicago.
0: So for undergrad, you, so you're so you at DePaul, mm-hmm. and you did, what was it, what, what, what's the name of your degree in?
1: Costume technology. Costume
0: technology. Basically,
1: okay. it's building costumes, okay. sewing costumes.
0: So you could make us... If we wanted a banana costume, you could make us a banana costume. Oh, yeah, that
1: would be real easy. I could do that. Excellent. Um, yeah, we made all sorts of crazy stuff. We made masks and puppets and, you know, like animal costumes. Like we made a cow one time, um, two-people cow costume. Um, yeah, was, was that just
0: for class, or was there actually practical use of the cow costume?
1: Mm, so our program was part of um, – my major was part of a, the theater school, which is uh, a school that produces multiple plays a year. is what they do. Um, so it's basically like a theater company inside of a school. And uh, we produce children's plays and also dramas, uh, sometimes musicals. And so the cow was for um, the play adaptation of the books, a Wayside uh, Stories of Wayside School, or something like that. Oh, Do you remember those books from our childhood?
0: Vaguely, yeah. It's been, yeah. My mother is actually a children's librarian, mm. um, so I grew up around the library, and so yeah, I rem- yeah the name. Side- is...
1: Sideways Stories of Wayside School. I think so, is what yeah, it was. Yeah, that sounds
0: right. Something yeah. along those lines. So yeah, and I there think... was
1: there was a cow involved, and so we had to make a cow costume for the play.
0: Okay, yes. well, I thought it just would have been just for fun would have been nice too.
1: I know. I did make a moose head, uh, a foam moose head for fun. It was when we were learning how to make masks, and then I hung it on my wall for a really long time. Uh, I was really sad. I had to throw it away when I left college because, I mean, what do you do with a moose head? Um,
0: uh, you keep it, obviously. I, obviously,
1: <laughs> but I, I put it in the trash and I was really hoping someone would come and get it. But at the moment that I threw it away was when the trash collectors were coming. I was hoping that it would just sit out there for a day so that someone could make use of my beautiful moose head. But instead, it just went into a garbage dump because the trash people came.
0: <laughs> it was so, so sad. So was this like a realistic-looking moose? Or yeah, was like... it was a
1: pretty big moose head. It was like I could have worn it around. <laughs> it was quite large. <laughs> and you,
0: you didn't do this every day?
1: No, I just hung it on my wall like like a moose.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So did you do any... Um professional work then after your degree in theater?
1: I actually did most of my professional work while I was in school. So um, one of the perks of the program is to work with your professors. Um, They're all working professionals. So uh, your teachers will bring you on for a show uh, in one of the professional theaters in Chicago. There are many and so I worked on several productions. Um, One of them was at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater uh, and Navy Pier. If anyone's been to Chicago, they probably know Navy Pier. And that was really awesome. I would go down there every day. I felt kind of famous, actually, because it's just this fabulous building with this fabulous, very famous theater. And I got to go every day and um, work with amazing people and make these incredible, beautiful, giant costumes, fabulous colors and wigs. And um, also, you work very closely with people you go to school with, because it's a very small community. Um, so like my best friend was working in the wig department and I was a stitcher, which is like the sewer, you know. Um, a bit less luxurious, but still cool. Um, I have to say though, I think that the job that was a pivotal moment in my, my very short costuming career, it felt very long, but it was really not at all. It was four years. Uh, was when I worked in New York City and I went for an internship. It was an unpaid internship in New York City, which is a bit absurd because New York is so expensive. I don't know what I was...
0: One of the most expensive places in the world. Yeah, I don't know what I
1: was thinking. I paid $2,000 for my apartment that I stayed in for a month. It was absolutely absurd. And... I felt fabulous, but I wasn't making any money. I was eating pasta every day and barely affording anything. I was hungry all the time, um, begging for scraps from my coworkers in this millinery shop. I was making hats for this woman, uh, Ellen Christine Millinery, if anyone wants to look her up. She does fabulous work, but she's awful. Um, it was like working – it was like the movie Devil Wears Prada.
0: I can't say I've seen it, but I, I know the premise.
1: Yeah, yeah. Basically um, – I worked six days a week, twelve hours a day, and I wasn't getting paid. And uh, I was this little—I thought I—I I thought I had this big personality that could take on anything. And um, I'm very—I'm a very outspoken person and tough. Well, I got to New York and I got walked all over. Like I—I remember calling for Ellen. I had to call around to go pick up some order for her, and I picked up the phone and called and the person on the other line picked up and uh it was they didn't say anything they just hello so-and-so's shop and I was like oh hi I'm calling from you know Ellen Christine Millinery how are you today and they're like what do you want and I was like uh I need to pick up an order and they're like yeah okay what time tell us we're busy let's go and I was just so surprised because in the Midwest, that's, you have to greet people first. It was a culture shock for me. I'd never experienced in my own country. Well, it's funny too, because my mother is from the South. The uh,
0: brusque nature of oh, yes. interactions.
1: Very, very direct. Very direct, indeed.
0: Okay, so that was a so you said that was a pivotal moment in what way?
1: I just I think I burnt out. I was there and very hungry, and was like, I don't think this is realistic in the long term. I don't know if I can do this at the same time, i um had put in an application to teach English in France with a program there, and I was double majoring, well, no, I wasn't double majoring. I was getting a minor in. French language at, the, at DePaul, and this internship was for my costume major, but on the other side I was doing French, and I decided that I really, this was the only time I was going to be able to live in France, this is what I thought at the time, um, and so when I got accepted to that program, I decided to move to France. Now, that decision was very difficult, because at the same moment when I decided to move there, I had been accepted to that program, I had also been accepted for... Um, an apprenticeship with a Shakespeare, a Shakespeare company, Shakespearean Theater Company in Washington, D.C. It was a very reputable company there, and basically it would have been two years of me really honing my craft, and it would have um, jump-started my career, possibly into a theater where I would have had a stable position and been paid a living wage, Um, but I decided that maybe they would wait for me. They would hold that position for me. And uh, this France thing, I wasn't going to be able to do it any other time. I found out later that both of those ideas were wrong. I could have done France later, and this job was not going to wait for me. But I found that out when I returned after my year in France to find the job had moved on, and I didn't really have a choice. Just how I ended up in TESOL, because I liked it a lot more, actually, than costuming.
0: So what What exactly was the position in France?
1: It's just a like a teaching assistant position, kind of like JET, like an um, English language teaching assistant for the students. And I planned some lessons, but they mostly used me like a conversation partner.
0: Okay, so were you in, was it in public schools and private schools? and
1: Public schools. Um, I had a quite a range. It was high school. I had the high school students. And I mostly saw juniors and seniors. Um, but I also had some students that were called... What was their term? Uh, anyway, they they were doing like a first year of college, but it was for technical school. They weren't going to four year university. Okay. What would we call that? Um, do you know what I mean? Like they were learning a craft. Uh,
0: trade school. A
1: trade school. There you go. So uh, they were doing trade school work, and so I would talk to them about passing this special test they had to pass. So I'd kind of be like their test proctor, if you will, for practice tests. Uh, and that was really great. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I found that I was much more relaxed and it came much more easily to me doing teaching sort of things than doing costuming. I, When I was in school for costuming, I very rarely slept. I uh, was working until three in the morning most nights on things, just working so hard to make sure that I got the best grades. And I'm like, man, this is not sustainable. I don't think I can work till 3 in the morning just so that I can be the best all the time. I, this needs to be something more natural.
0: I can see that. <laughs> 3 a.m. every day is not a healthy thing, even mm-hmm. when you're 20 years old.
1: No, no. <laughs> so. It was not the healthiest period of my
0: life, let's just say. So we're in France, were you in Paris area? or?
1: Well, yeah, so I went study abroad in my last semester of uh, undergrad. I had finished all of my duties uh, in the theater school, and I left for two and a half months at the end of my senior year and studied abroad in Paris, which was very formative for me, um, and then got this international, the, the teaching thing, and did that, returned for the summer to the States, and then returned back to France starting, when was that? Like September October, and taught for well, taught, assisted for about seven months. And I did that two years in a row. So I went back for the summer and then came back for the school year.
0: What's the school year in France? When does it start?
1: Oh, man, that was a while ago. Um, I don't quite remember. I feel like I got there around September. I left before they finished. So they finished in maybe June.
0: So it's not unlike the American school calendar? It's fairly
1: similar, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And that kind of, you said, was a more relaxing thing that you felt comfortable doing
1: yeah and I loved it I felt energized all the time as opposed to drained
0: <laughs> and so is that that uh, spurred your decision to go on and get a, a masters in TESOL
1: it did it did it really did I felt that um, in the costume shops that I worked in often it it was mostly women first of all and um, they talked a lot about cats and groceries and the cocktails that they liked to drink. Those were the three topics of conversation, uh, and maybe gossiping about other people who uh, had left the company. Right? They went and worked for someone else, and so it was those four. Um, and I felt that that was very tiresome. I didn't really want to spend the rest of my life talking about cats and groceries um, and cocktails. So when I realized that in, in France that talking to these students about their culture and talking about the differences in language and traveling, it was much more energizing because it was always new. I mean, your cat doesn't do so many great things that you want to talk about it all the time. I mean, maybe your cat's great, but I just I was getting kind of bored.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I have two cats, and I love them. They're great cats. Well, except Arrow when he poops on the sofa, but <laughs> but yeah, there's. They really don't do a lot of new things. Right? They're kind of doing the same sort of things every day. So
1: I mean, we say that, but then people watch cat videos on YouTube for hours. So I maybe cats are very interesting. True, but, but
0: the cat videos on YouTube are the selected moments.
1: Right. They're curated cats. Right, they're, they're... Exactly. They're
0: curated <laughs> cats. So the everyday cat is not so exciting.
1: Right, right. So I can
0: see, yes, listening listening to that discussion every day. I wouldn't want to listen to it either, and I love cats, and I have cats. (laughs) So you go on, you do your master's. After your master's, what do you do?
1: Uh, What did I do after my master's? So um, what did I do after my master's? Let me think. I taught in Chicago for a while. Um, I taught at a private language school. It was very interesting. I taught adults, and in the summer I also taught like high school slash freshman and college age kids. Uh, mostly I taught adults, which was, was really neat. I, had, I taught like CEOs. They would come for business English, and that was cool. But I had to write all my own material. We had a textbook for certain classes, but the rest I had to write myself, which was time-consuming but rewarding. And then I taught at a university um, for several years, which was... Nice, and then I came to Japan.
0: Where did you teach in the States with the university?
1: I taught at DePaul, actually. I went back to my alma mater.
0: Okay, so. Yeah. It, was one,
1: it was one of, actually, there's a funny story there. It was one of the most um, popular intensive English programs to teach at in the city at the time. And uh, there was a rivalry in my graduate program between myself and someone who is now a good friend of mine, Uh, His name is Steven, and Steven and I were rivals in our graduate studies, like always who could get the better grade, and who could say the smarter thing, and, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And then we both decided that we wanted this internship at DePaul that they had. They only had one position available, and we were in the same year, and so only one of us could get accepted. I joked with him that I would have to do something to make it impossible for him to get this internship because I really wanted it. Uh, it Turns out that we both fought so hard that they made an exception and they took both of us. But it was really tense up until the last minute of like, oh man, what if Steven gets this internship and I don't get it? And you know, I was trying to play the card of like, it's my undergraduate university, I should get the internship, I deserve it. And he's like, I'm working harder. So we were just, both of us were and then the, the reason it was so uh, intense was usually the idea was after the internship, you immediately got a job with them. And they paid well, and it was relatively secure. And so it was like, man, I really need this job. You've got to take me. And we both got it, and then we both got jobs. So it was all fine at the end.
0: Well, that worked out. <laughs> yeah. Glad everything worked out at the end. Yeah. So do you have any other interesting jobs along the way that you ever did?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like in comparison to some other GTFs who've like done rock climbing or firefighting, it's not quite as exciting. But I, um, the millinery thing in New York was pretty crazy. Custom tech was crazy. But I also had a stint as a restaurant host, and that was kind of fun because the restaurant that I started my hostess career at, not Japanese hostess in America, you just put people at tables, you just take them to their table, um, and talk to talk to people, but. Um, it was at this place called Petarino's and it's in downtown Chicago in what's called the theater district. So there's all these fancy theaters down there and people come, they go to the show, but it's also right next to, um, the courthouse. So the judges would come in, uh, the lawyers would come in at lunch and then you would have people coming in. They'd get married at the courthouse. They so had weddings sometimes people would come in and then you had regular tourists who were just lost and looking for a place to eat. And then you had, um, People that were going to Broadway shows, uh, they call it Broadway in Chicago, Broadway's in New York, but the shows would come through Chicago at these theaters and so people would go to the theater and they'd come before the show and they'd come after the show. And in between, sometimes you would have celebrities who would come through because they were in the shows. So they would come eat um, or drink at the bar uh, when they were off not being in the show. Um, That was always really neat. And we had pictures, hand-drawn pictures of these people. We knew, when we knew that they were gonna come through Chicago, we would have someone draw their caricature and put it on the wall. And that's all the decoration that was in the place. It was just these caricatures of famous people. And when they would come in, uh, we would have them sign their name, autograph their
0: caricature. So who were the, uh, the favorite people you got to meet?
1: Well, I met um, Billy Bob Thornton, he was very short, in fact. For some reason, he looks tall in movies, but he's not. He's quite short.
0: It's all about the angles.
1: Yeah, and um, there's a comedian, Lewis Black. I met Lewis Black as well. He's quite nice. He kept to himself. He yeah, came I, in at like 2 o'clock and sat at the bar for a couple hours, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon.
0: From his persona that I've seen on TV, that doesn't surprise me.
1: Yeah, drinking I, at 2 p.m. is a, a thing that he would do. And just I think
0: also <laughs> his his very outsized... Personality on TV kind of does kind of hint at maybe his private self is probably kind of not the same mm-hmm. so He prefers to kind of go be him on his own little Thing yep. Yeah, so.
1: kept himself for sure um, The hardest thing when meeting these people was not to ask for their autograph. We were instructed like don't bother them They just they want they want to have a nice calm meal away from all the lights and flashes of cameras and paparazzi Um so just leave them alone. And so I very I didn't really talk to Lewis Black. I greeted him and, and you know said thank you for coming when he left, but we didn't really talk. But Billy Bob Thornton was really cool. Uh, he invited us to come to his concert. He was doing a performance with a rockabilly band that he has. A lot of famous people somehow, uh, they're known for acting maybe, but they have a band.
0: Um, yeah, a lot. I think Kevin Bacon's another one that's got a band and
1: Steve Martin has a band. He has banjo thing. His that banjo, thing he yeah. He's yeah. actually really good at banjo. He's quite good. Yeah, yeah. he's very, yeah, he's very good at it. Um, but Billy Bob Thornton has a rockabilly band, and he invited myself and the bartender, and uh, the manager, and there was one other person. Uh, I don't remember. Maybe another served his server or something. He also sat at the bar um, to come to his rockabilly band concert that night in this weird place in Chicago that was just a very odd location. And um, my manager was really excited because he knew a lot about Billy Bob Thornton, how crazy Billy Bob Thornton is. And I didn't really know Billy Bob Thornton. I only knew his name. I didn't know what his reputation was. Um, Quite the crazy person. And uh, so he was really excited to go party with Billy Bob Thornton. And so we all went. I was really nervous because I don't like to party. And uh, I just kind of went because I felt, oh, this is something I should do. And we went and we sat in this sort of mezzanine level. It's kind of like that, like a balcony. And watched his Rockabilly show from this balcony. But the bar was not free and there was no one up there with us. We didn't get to talk to Billy Bob Thornton. We just got to watch him from afar. And there weren't very many people at the concert. So after about a half an hour, I left. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, it's I, quite
1: boring, actually.
0: <laughs> I would probably do the same if I weren't into Rocky Billy, or if maybe the band weren't all that great. Yeah. I have no yeah. idea. I have no idea. Was was the band any good?
1: I mean, I remember it not being terrible, but also the venue was pretty. Didn't have very good acoustics, so the sound wasn't so great. And okay. So I was just thinking, like, well, this was supposed to be all this exciting, crazy stuff. I think I'm just gonna go home. <laughs>
0: Yeah. You said then after you worked at DePaul, you said mm-hmm. you came to Japan. Yeah, yeah. So how how did that happen?
1: Oh well, okay. So that whole story of, when I was talking about how stable DePaul was and how the work everyone was unrivaled, and everybody wanted to work there. Um, it's true, and their their uh, atmosphere, community of teachers is great, and the students are great, but there was a bit of turmoil at that time in the United States with student population um, in that they weren't, the students weren't coming as much as they had been, so the numbers were falling. We didn't have as many students, and so they, there weren't as many hours for teachers, so they had to cut positions, they had to um, take less teachers, hire less teachers, or give teachers less time, which meant you got less pay, because you were paid hourly. Um, are we paid hourly, we were paid by the course, but anyway, if you got less courses, you got less pay. And I kind of saw, as we say in English, saw the writing on the wall. It was kind of um, a moment of, well, I'm not sure how much longer I can stay at this job if the students aren't coming. And they had one opening for a full-time position. My friend got that position, which was good, but that just meant that there wasn't very much turnover in the full-time positions, so the next position wasn't coming along for another five years and I didn't want to wait five years and I just decided you know I should just apply for some jobs my husband and I didn't want to leave the United States really we just kind of wanted to see like I don't know what's available and I applied to several jobs so many in fact I was just kind of another idiom throwing spaghetti at the wall lots of wall idioms uh, kind of seeing what's stuck and seeing you know what the opportunities would be and I got a call from Gunnar Gunderson at 8 o'clock on a Thursday night, and I was so surprised because it was 8 o'clock on a Thursday night, Mm -hmm. I was getting a call from a university. I had applied to so many jobs, I didn't remember what jobs I had applied for. And he called and he said, I'm Gunnar Gunderson from... Uh, such and such program at Tokyo International University in America, TIUA. And at this point, all I heard was Tokyo and university. And I was like, oh, I I didn't catch his name. I didn't know why he was calling. So for the first five minutes of this interview that I didn't know was an interview, um, I was just stumbling around trying to figure out who I was talking to and why I was talking to them. And um, he he basically just asked me a bunch of questions about my career and my CV and what I would do in different situations. And by the end, I got to the end, and I and he said, "Oh well, this you know this interview went really well. Um, would you, we? I'd like to set up another interview with the panel." And I was like, "Oh, this was an interview." <laughs> okay uh yeah let's set up an interview with a panel i and then i had to go and look at what
0: university he was talking about because i still didn't know that's interesting because we came at the same time Mm -hmm. and i don't remember having anyone do that kind of pre-interview interview i just Went straight to the panel interview, I think. Maybe
1: they liked you more.
0: Or maybe or maybe <laughs> because I was already in Japan, or... I don't maybe. know. I, have, I don't know how that... Yeah, no, I didn't have that pre-interview interview.
1: The, the sly interview.
0: Right. The unofficial no one, interview. No one called me on 8 o'clock on a Thursday night.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and then in the interview... So I thought my, my conversation with Gunnar had gone very well. Um, and so then I had this panel interview. I was so nervous. But I was kind of like, well, if that went well, this will go fine. And... Uh, we open up the Skype interview, and there's Gunner on a television screen. He's being projected on a television screen behind a panel of all Japanese people and then Kevin and George. I didn't know who any of these people were. The only person I knew was Gunner, who doesn't even work here, uh, which is so funny about this whole thing. And so Gunner, I'm looking at Gunner the whole time, and there's no expression on anyone's face. I tried to crack a joke, and nobody smiled. I tried to chuckle, and nobody laughed. And in in American culture, you kind of try to make jokes in interviews, soften the mood, see if maybe the people like you, nothing. So I was freaking out, and I had I had, had friends over for dinner, and I told them, look, you guys have to leave at eight o'clock. I have this Skype calls at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock or something. I have the Skype call, can can you go get ice cream and come back in 30 minutes? You know, it won't take that long. So my husband took our friends to go get ice cream and they came back and, how was it? And I was like, oh, I totally didn't get the job. Nobody laughed at my jokes. and. You know, they all looked very angry with me. I don't know what I said to make them so angry. And, you know, Gunnar Gunner was smiling, but I, I don't even know him. Like, I don't know any of these people. And it was just a room full of very stoic men. Um, I can't read them. So I didn't get the job. So anyway, we'll be staying here in America for quite some time. And then, like, the next week I got an email. It's was like, congratulations. <laughs> I was so confused. <laughs> did so, you did you have a similar experience?
0: Um Honestly, I don't recall I, mean,
1: I, I, yeah. um. I don't remember what they asked us even it's like I it's like it was a movie like I was watching myself I don't so, really have any <laughs> memory of
0: it so were there any other uh, positions that you had interviews for and offers from or anything
1: I did yeah I had a well right before this no, no was it right before there was a point at which um, I had applied to work for the State Department, and I had been accepted for the State Department position, uh, and they were going to send me to Bahrain, which I now know is is a quite nice place to live, but at the time, it, the Arab Spring had just kind of calmed down, and there were some things happening with terrorism in the region, and I thought, well, my mother will kill me if I do that. So and uh, maybe I shouldn't. I go there, maybe get killed by terrorists, or I go there and then come home, my mother kills me. One of those two things will be true, so maybe if I just want to stay alive, I should not do that. <laughs> um, and so, so I turned that down, and then I got an offer from a Korean school, but the woman, when we were doing the interview, was talking about how stressed out she was to be doing the interview. She was a teacher, not an administrator, and it was super late. It was like 10 p.m. her time, and she was in her off time having this interview with me and i was like this is a really bad sign i should not work for this school so when she offered me the position i was like no and here's why and i told her and she's like yeah that's fair uh i understand why you don't want to work here <laughs> uh,
0: so ultimately tiu was the best offer and the best place at yeah, least at the time
1: yeah definitely um it was really interesting because i was still so nervous japan is so far away and um Time difference is so difficult and um, my mom was very happy to have me not be living so far away uh, for once because I'd lived two, basically two years in France and so she was not keen to have us move away um, I was so nervous about my choice that my husband had to send the email I, type, I like couldn't even type it, the, the I accept the position email. I was so nervous, and I, f- I felt so preemptively guilty because I, was making, I would be making him move as well. Um, I was like, I really don't know if this is the best choice for us. I really don't want you to have to leave your career. We're not sure if your job will like, help you live abroad, and what if we're only on one income, and I was freaking out. And uh, He typed up the email, and he was like, I'm just going to send it. I'm going to click the send button. And he did. So actually, technically, I didn't accept the offer. My husband did. So maybe he should be working here.
0: That'd <laughs> <laughs> be a little different dynamic, I think. Right? <laughs> He's a nice guy. I like him. Yeah. But certainly, it'd be a different dynamic. Mm. So uh, how long do you expect to be out of the country or about out of the states?
1: Man, that's so interesting. Uh, the recent presidential election really um, – changed. It was a game changer for us. It really changed our uh, future goals, I think. We were very excited to move back home after two and a half years here. Two and a half years is a long time. It was my first contract. And um, we told all of our family members and all of our friends, yeah, two and a half years, it's really long, but when it's over, we'll come back. We're really planning to come back. We don't plan to stay abroad. Well, two and a half years came and went, Donald Trump became president, and uh, we decided that that was not going to work for us. So we um, signed up for two more years and once again told all of our family, you know, okay, well, we're going to come home after that. We don't plan to live here forever. But we hedged a little. It wasn't so much we're going to come back to the States. It was more like we're not going to live in Japan forever. So at least we kind of gave ourselves a little bit of, breathing room because the more we think about it and the longer we live abroad, the less likely we are to go home, I think. And a lot of our friends, mm, no, not a lot of our friends, several of our friends don't live in the United States anymore. And most of them don't live in Chicago anymore. Um, So it's hard to go back to a place that isn't the way it was when you left it and the people that you care about aren't there.
0: Having been away for 13 years, I can... Yes, definitely say that that is very
1: true. I think that's the reason why my mom stays in the house that I grew up in. It's too big for her. It's just her. Um, Right? So my dad has remarried twice now. He lives out in the suburbs and he you still lives in a place that I guess I kind of knew growing up, but um, that was never my home. But my mom, I think she still keeps the house because she wants us to come back. Like She wants me to have a home to come back to. And if she moves, I'll have even less incentive to come back to the United States, specifically Chicago. And I love Chicago, and for a time, I really thought I could raise a family there. And it's a lovely city, it's especially great for visiting. But, yeah, just big picture... Really, there's a lot that needs fixing.
0: Do you see at least a possibility of being permanent expats? Probably. At this point?
1: Yeah, yeah, my husband changed careers um, to something that he could maybe telecommute wherever he goes or where we would move for whatever his job is and then I could telecommute or I could you know, find work if it's in a non-English speaking country or an English-speaking country that needs English population. teachers. Yeah, um, yeah. That we're both very flexible now, which is a major relief because before he worked in lighting. We went. We met at the theater school, and uh, so he did lighting for theater, and then did lighting for cruise ships, and then did lighting for special events, and now doesn't. Now he does computer
0: programming. Lighting for cruise. interesting yeah all right well i think we've talked about just about everything mm. so um i've had a good time it's been a lot of fun so thank well, you, thank very, you much. very much for having me all four expanding circles for today i'll keep making these things as long as i can find people to talk to and as long as people are listening until next time i'm jonathan isaacson